Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $121 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today in the virtual podcast booth once again with a very familiar face to me, Josh Jamner, an investment strategy analyst, my co-author, and a regular presenter of ClearBridge's Anatomy of a Recession program. Josh, welcome back to the booth. Thanks for having me back, Jeff. And when the last time we chatted on a podcast in October, the economy was at a crossroads with a yellow signal emanating from the recession dashboard at ClearBridge due to a a push-pull dynamic between a strong U.S. consumer and a weakening manufacturing sector. The COVID-19 outbreak has swiftly and powerfully altered the economic dynamic, and today, it's only a matter of time before a U.S. recession is declared officially. So not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So as part of a national effort to curb the spread, we're now in three months into a work from home environment. And this is our second virtual podcast from multiple locations. This time I'm coming to you from New Jersey and Josh is coming to us from Connecticut, where thankfully golf courses are both open, but unfortunately the lines at Costco remain painfully long. Yet at least many of the big national retails are open which is more than we can say about many of the small businesses in both of our states and around much of the country. And that's a big headwind to an economic recovery, as we will discuss in today's podcast entitled, Why Are Markets and the Economy Sending Conflicting Signals? As always, we would love to get back your feedback about the topics we cover on our podcast and how we can make them better. So you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Now, Josh, when we talked back in October, a lot was going on in the economy. The dashboard on the recession side was obviously turning yellow. And I remember asking you to describe a song that you felt encapsulated the economic and market environment. And obviously, me being a homer here in New Jersey, I picked Bon Jovi. And I think Living on a Prayer was the first song that came to our minds. Now, given everything that's transpired eight months later here, and I'm not going to hold you to someone from New Jersey. I think, you know, I don't know how robust your Bruce Springsteen memory banks are, but what type of song do you think encapsulates where we were a month and a half ago versus where we are today and likely going to see going forward? I think for the, for the month ago, and I'm glad you, you let me branch out beyond just, you know, Bon Jovi or Bruce, I think I would have been running out of song titles pretty quickly. But, you know, if we had to pick a song from a month ago, I think the, um, the Led Zeppelin classic, Dazed and Confused, probably would have aptly summed things up if we were sitting here in the middle of April. For me, at least, it felt like the month, you know, the, the end of February, the whole month of March and the first half of April really just was a whirlwind and I think was a lot to process. And I, I think even a month later, I'm still partially recovering from it. <laughs> Interesting side note, it's actually not a Led Zeppelin song. I think there was a whole lawsuit about 10 years ago. I think that's uh, a Led Zeppelin song inspired by someone else. They had to had a, had a make a settlement with um, someone that had been in a band with one of the, the band members earlier on. But um, if you ask me to sum up the, the world today in a song, I'll, I'll stick with Zeppelin and I'll, I'll actually even stick off of the same album, their original album a little bit later on that album or earlier, I forget the song track, but I think good times, bad times is probably an apt description for the world we live in today. There are, there are certainly things we're looking at that seem more positive and then, and then we get other data points that certainly were reflective of bad times. But 
I think last time I, I asked you to, to also engage in this exercise of, of yeah, to pick one song to sum things up. What would your take be today? You know, I, I did anticipate that you're going to throw the ball back into my court, Josh. So I, I think I'm going to go outside of my wheelhouse. No, any, no New Jersey natives here. I'm going to go with the Beatles. Uh, I, I think the song that encapsulated February into late March is Help. Uh, <laughs> everything was crashing. Every, everybody was quite scared back then. Then I, they came back with a little help from my friends, which was the friends being Congress and, of course, the Fed providing that lifeline and support for the economy. And I think going forward, the last Beatles song that I'm going to go with here is The Long and Windy Road. As uh, I, I think when the economy comes back online, and, and Josh, me and you have talked about this numerous times, I think it's going to be a start-stop type of relationship, quite uh, a, a number of potential air pockets or speed bumps that will hit as the economy starts to renormalize. Absolutely. I mean, I think in looking at both of our song titles, there's both have this kind of push-pull, this, this, this element of, uh, you know, Good news and bad news, long and winding road, obviously, there as well. What do, you, what do you think the reason is that we're both going down this sort of cautious, you know, one step forward, one step back or, or sideways, whatever you want to call it? You know, when we look at the economy, we look at the markets today, uh, there's certainly a growing disconnect between, you know, the, the economic data that's coming out. When I looked this morning, GDP now, which is something one of the, the regional Federal Reserve banks put together, their, their current tracking for second quarter GDP in the United States is at minus 42%. And that'll get revised up and down over the next couple of weeks, of course. But we're sitting here with the economy as bad as it's ever been, probably. And the stock market's you know, doing, doing okay. So what, what do you attribute that disconnect to, Jeff? Well, you know, if I would have gone to at the start of the year and made a bet that the U.S. economy would lose 20 million jobs in the space of two months, and that at the same time, the NASDAQ would be up here year to date, I bet you, you would have said I was crazy. I don't even think Vegas would have put those odds up on the board because they would have been extremely long. But it's not uncommon for disconnects to happen, especially around turning points, right? If you think back to March of 09, the U.S. economy was still roughly in a free fall when the bottom happened, and you didn't really start to see some real solid green shoots, economically speaking, until you got into the third quarter of 2009. But thinking about it from this time, this perspective, uh, I think the stock market's been rallying so aggressively because, A, there's bets on a V-shaped recovery, which I have a little bit, I have some skepticism around that. Market leaders keep rising. There's a huge divide between the haves and the haves nots. A lot of the upside that we've seen here has been the outperformance of a handful of large technology stocks. The whole stock market isn't up. In fact, if you look at the S&P 500 equally weighted and you take out the FANG, the U.S. equities have been right on par with what you've seen with the MSCI World Index XUS. So there is a, a huge divide there. Also, I think there's a little bit of FOMO going on. Uh, investors have been trained to buy the dip, and they certainly have been doing it this time around. And uh, the other thing that I think is really important here is the fact that there is a huge divide between large businesses and small businesses right now. Right? In your typical recession, it's usually the large businesses that take a, a larger brunt of the hit, and the small businesses tend to fare better. But this time around, it's the exact opposite. Large businesses have been giving this, given this lifeline. Small businesses have been, it's been difficult for them to access capital, but also with social distancing, 
a lot of these small businesses aren't going to be open on the other side of this, uh, this storm. And you think about it from the last recession, for example, you saw the small businesses in the great financial crisis shed 6.9% of their jobs and large businesses shed 8.1%. So because of these differences, it's, you know, it's, it's not hard to piece together why the S&P 500 has been doing so well. But if you look down to like the Russell 2000, for example, it's, it's dramatically lagging what you're seeing with the large cap. So I think that has a lot to do with this divide that you've seen here recently. And lastly, quite frankly, I think earnings estimates have to come down uh, dramatically from where they are right now. So I think it's a combination of things. But again, it has taken a lot of participants by surprise. And the one thing that obviously we've been talking about with the client base is whether or not the lows for the markets have been put in here. And one of the things that we've been talking about is this prevalence of counter trend rallies. And uh, the reason why we focused on counter trend rallies is because V-shaped recoveries are extremely rare. In fact, if you go back to 1950, there's been 15 bear markets. Of those 15 times, the market has retouched or broken its low 14 of those times. So if you say it a different way, the V-shaped bottom is generally speaking, not the odds on favorite. So if you look back to the last couple of recessions that we've had, these counter trend rallies have gotten bigger over the years. During the 01 to 02 drawdown, you saw three notable counter trend rallies of 19%, 22%, and 21%. Back in 08, you had eight notable counter trend rallies ranging from 7 to 24%. And the, the most notable of those was the counter-trend rally in late 2008 when TARP's passage happened. But that 24% rise was unwound when you got some weaker than anticipated economic data in January and February. So, you know, the key point here is that counter-trend rallies are more prevalent than you think. And we'll obviously only know with the benefit of hindsight whether the, the low is in, but history would suggest that the caution is warranted. And, and Josh, I want you to, to maybe talk a little bit about the proprietary dashboard that we've come out with to, to kind of focus on the durable conditions needed for a market and economic bottom. Be, you know, hopefully to, to not fall victim to a lot of these counter trend rallies that you see. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what you're alluding to, a lot of our audience is hopefully familiar with the ClearBridge recession dashboard. You know, it'd be really nice if we could just sort of wait for that recession dashboard to renormalize. But unfortunately, the stock market tends to bottom you know, well ahead of the economy, about three months on average, and you get a pretty nice pop off the bottom. Now, as you mentioned, we also have counter trend rallies, so we have to be careful. There's a lot of head fakes or, or false starts, and, and obviously, we're not trying to catch a falling knife here. But ultimately, we need to you know, we realized that we needed to develop a tool to help us, you know, get comfortable with when uh, the right time to start re-risking was. And then when we looked at our recession dashboard, it tended to lag a little bit. You know, it's really calibrated for, for, for catching a recession on the front end, not so much coming out on the back end. So we built what we call a recovery dashboard. It has a very similar look and feel. We use that same sort of, you know, stoplight analogy. Green is good. Yellow, you know, like when you're driving a car, take your foot off the gas. Red is, is, is bad, hit the brakes. Uh, it's a little bit different. We, we break the world into three sections, confidence, the, the economy, and financial markets, as opposed to four on the recession dashboard. So overall, we have, we have nine indicators instead of 12. And when we look at that today, six of the nine are still red. There are three that are green. It's actually one in each of the three sections. Consumer confidence is looking pretty decent here. Uh, Philly Fed, one of the things we look at, also flashing a green signal. And then lastly, Fed policy, given the extraordinary measures that the Fed has taken over the last two, almost three months now, 
that, that signal's also green. However, the overall signal's still red. Starting to get a little bit closer to yellow, but it, it is still in red territory, unfortunately, which I think kind of syncs with what you were saying earlier that while the market has had this tremendous rally, we're still a little bit cautious, you know, on guard for a counter trend rally because the conditions that historically have signaled that we have this sort of durable economic and market bottom are just not there yet. We need to see a little bit more improvement. And I was actually looking at the, the data behind this just this morning, updating it through the middle of May, and there's, there's nothing quite yet that looks like it's ready to, to jump to the positive or the negative for that matter. So we're still kind of treading water, not unlike the stock market has done over the last month. Uh, you know, the, the signals are kind of right where they were a couple of weeks ago. So obviously, uh, we won't we'll only know with the benefit of hindsight whether the, the market bottom is in. Um, one thing that I'll mention is that counter trend rallies, you actually had one back in 1929 to 1930, counter trend rally of 47% over the course of four months. Obviously, the policy prescription that we had back in the 1930s is different than where we are today. Again, it's not to say that the market can't move down lower as the economy starts to reopen. Maybe we get a second wave of infections. Maybe it becomes clear that consumers and businesses start to change their spending habits a little bit more than what's being priced in. But Josh, you know, outside of the recovery dashboard, and I know that's obviously something that we monitor quite closely can you name a couple of other things that you think bears watching as we do start to finally normalize the economy? Yeah, I think first and foremost, um, credit spreads are the thing that I'm most closely watching. They're, they're actually on the dashboard, but watching them in even more granular detail than we do on the dashboard. I think that's going to be an important barometer of both the steps the Fed has taken with them moving to support you know, the investment grade credit market at the margin support, the high yield market and the CLO market, other other spectrums of the credit risk curve, but ultimately a good measure that all of the steps the Fed has taken to help prevent a liquidity crisis, keep capital flowing to corporate corporations will be effective or not. And that will help us gauge how we think about the recovery. Obviously, the more companies that go out of business, the more jobs that are lost, the, the longer and more prolonged the downturn is going to be, as opposed to a kind of more shorter and, and less severe recession if the Fed's able to, to help us kind of bridge this gap. And what I think is interesting is credit spreads. High yield spreads have continued to kind of grind down at a much slower pace than what we're seeing. But investment grade spreads have actually started to, to blow out here a little bit. I mean, maybe blow out's a, a strong word, but they've inched higher over the last couple of weeks. And obviously, with the Fed buying corporate bonds here, that, that program finally coming into operation, I think that's probably going to be a, a pretty powerful signal that spreads should continue to tighten from here. Yeah, I agree. And even high yield spreads over the last couple of weeks have kind of done what the stock market's done. They've really been inching sideways more than anything. You have up days, you have down days, but when you take a step back and zoom out a bit over the last month, high yield spreads are you know, within a couple of basis points of where they were you know, four or five weeks ago. One thing that I think is interesting is jobless claims. I mean, we've been talking about that uh, internally. It's one of the best high-frequency data points out there. Um, it's not subject to huge revisions. It's on a weekly basis. Uh, jobless claims continue to be stubbornly high. We got uh, almost 3 million claims here last week. But I think maybe going forward, continuing jobless claims will be the more timely indicator, right? How many people are staying on unemployment claims rather than transitioning back into the workforce uh, and we're up to about 22.8 million. Um, so I think, you know, those two in tandem with one another is going to continue to be able to identify how healthy the economy is and whether or not it truly is starting to, to get back online. 
That number actually is an interesting one. So there's about 22 and a half million unemployment cl- continuing claims. Excuse me. There's been somewhere between 30 and 35 million at this point uh, initial claims filed, and so you know that sort of suggests you know about a third of the people that filed the claim. You know whether they're back to work or they found a new job. We don't know, but but they're they're not on a continuing claim. And that actually syncs with a study that one of the regional Fed banks did, saying that you know for every 10 jobs lost. Their research suggested that there have been three jobs created, and this was just since the start of sort of the coronavirus stay-at-home, safer-at-home measures going on. And you know, the, the nature of the jobs is going to be different, obviously, but it's an encouraging sign that, that jobs are being created, whether it's you know, big companies like the Amazons, Walmarts, Targets of the world hiring people for, for you know, more online delivery type of things, whether it's Instacart or something like that, where they're you know hiring personal shoppers, even local grocery chain here. I was picking up groceries in the parking lot from. I was talking to the guy through the window while while we were while he was putting the, the bags in the in the trunk, and he said, "Yeah, I, I used to work as a waiter, and I just got this job. We've hired uh, about fifty people so far, and I think they're planning on hiring about fifty more." So there are some encouraging signs that the whether it's the measures that the the Fed has taken, the, the federal government, obviously the CARES Act, are helping kind of blunt some of the impact from these uh, shutdowns and, and the related job losses. I think another interesting data point to watch is probably the five-year, five-year inflation break-evens to Absolutely. see whether or not reflation is actually taking hold here in the U.S. You saw a nice pop off the lows when uh, the Fed and Congress had stepped in that last week of March, but they've actually kind of been sideways to down. I think the latest reading that I saw earlier this week was at 1.42 as what the expected inflation rate is over the next 10 years, which is well below where we were coming into uh, this downturn. So that's an area that if you do see some firmness there and you do start to see it reaccelerate, I would imagine that you're, you're probably part, you're already past the, the worst part of this recession and uh, investors are, are rightfully starting to anticipate some higher economic growth going forward. Josh, I know that you did an interesting piece internally on secondary issuance. Maybe you talk a little bit about that and what the significance potentially could be. Yeah, you tend to see a pop in secondary stock offerings. So these aren't IPOs. These are companies that are already public issuing more shares. You tend to, tend to see that you know completely, I don't want to say go away, but more or less collapse during market lows and during periods of market stress. But as that market reopens, you, send, you send to, tend to see a growing wave and really a surge in issuance. And that tends to be a signal that, that helps confirm the signals that we have on our recovery dashboard that, that you have this sort of more durable economic and market bottom being formed. Still pretty early, but the data so far in the first half of May points to a pretty big uptick. You've had more issuance in terms of just the number of companies coming to market and issuing stock in the last two weeks than you did the entire prior month, almost the entire prior two months. So if this continues over the next couple of weeks, call it the rest of May and into June, uh, that could be another signal that we're keeping an eye on outside of our recovery dashboard that could help us uh, you know, at the margin become incrementally a little bit more positive. Okay, so you know, let's transition here. And, and obviously, I, I think one of the trillion-dollar questions that everybody has on their mind right now is market leadership, value versus growth. Which one's going to win? Continuing as uh, we reopen the economy, and if you kind of crack open the recession playbook, you know, larger cap, less economically sensitive, kind of domestic growth stocks, they generally should outperform on the way down, but they should lag meaningfully as the market recovers, and that has not been the case this time around. Right, small caps have had a tough experience on both the way down and, and the bounce. Growth has consistently led. Value has lagged. International stocks led on the way down, but they have lagged significantly on the way up, which is the exact opposite dynamic of where we find ourselves. I mean, 
Josh, you, do, do you think that value has a potential to, to lead sustainably from here? Or do you think it's still going to be growth's world? Because I'm, I'm kind of in the camp that I think growth is going to continue to, to lead in this type of environment, just given the nature of this recovery that we're going to see. I think over the longer term, I agree that I think growth probably, if we're looking out over a couple of year time horizon, growth probably will, will, will have the edge. I think there's the, the, the prospect and the potential for shorter periods of value outperformance. Uh, you know, if, if, if we woke up tomorrow, not like today, but if we woke up tomorrow and they said, oh, you know, there's a, a vaccine available, and I'm alluding to the headline that came out this morning that there was encouraging news on a, on a vaccine, certainly not a vaccine proven, tested, cleared, and, and approved, and anything like that. But if, if we woke up tomorrow and sort of the best case scenario unfolded, and we were all able to go back to the office, go back to our jobs, you have all of the stimulus that's out there, I think that could lead to a shorter periods of value outperformance. And, you know, we were talking a second ago about, you know, things to watch. I think market leadership is one of the other things I'm watching. We've had couple of weeks where you know value was doing really well as a style and then and then it sort of faded and it's been on and off on and off over the last five or six weeks now that's just another thing that that I've been looking for and you, you mentioned also I wanted to pick up on a comment you made a second ago about uh, you know us versus non-us leadership I thought it, not not necessarily surprising but we're at the point now a little over 90 percent of S&P 500 companies have reported earnings if you were to break the S&P 500 into sort of a more domestic focused and a more global focused, the more global focused companies had much weaker earnings results, about minus 10% earnings growth year over year in the first quarter, the domestic basket minus two. So, you know, obviously coronavirus was a much more global issue for, for most of the first quarter. It was impacting China in, in, in late January, certainly in February, it was impacting Asia and, and even into Europe by February, March, it really only kind of came to American shores in, in size and, and in a significant way in the, in the latter half of March. And as we look towards the second quarter and third quarter, I think that that might uh, turn itself around. It kind of brings me into to another point of debate here is what type of recovery are we going to get? Right? I, I've heard a lot of interesting letters describing the recovery. V, W, U, backwards J, backwards square root sign. I've even heard uh, the sign uh, of the artist formerly known as Prince once <laughs> describing this recovery. Josh, what type of recovery are you expecting? Because I, I know I think we agree on this point. It's probably going to be something more backwards J or fish hook oriented, or maybe even a U. Yeah, I, I don't know what the right way to describe it is. Nike swoosh, maybe, but but I think we're on the same page where uh, you know there might be a little bit of an initial bounce off the bottom, and that's just somewhat of a function of math. But once we get past that initial bounce, we're probably in for a little bit slower recovery, you know, if we think about where the economy was before coronavirus broke out, we were struggling to get above two and a half percent GDP growth here in the U.S. with, you know, maybe one and a half percent inflation uh, over the last decade, if not, you know, a little bit longer. So, you know, kind of four percent nominal growth. I think that that's going to be maybe even optimistic when we're, so, you know, sitting here in 2022 or 2023, hopefully not here in both of our homes, but back in a studio. Not knock but, on wood. But, um, you know, I think once we get past the initial uplift off the bottom, I think we're probably in for, for more sluggish growth for, for a couple of reasons. You can take your pick. There, there, there's any number. But I think one of the biggest one is there's going to be a, an overhang of spare capacity in the economy for uh, a meaningful period of time. Some of the most vulnerable parts of the economy and one of the most important parts of the economy is the small business landscape. This was a sector that was really, I don't want to say in trouble, but under pressure ahead of coronavirus. If we go back to our recession dashboard, wage inflation and profit margins were two things that were signaling either yellow or red over the last you know, six to nine months, nine to 12 months at this point in, in some of those cases. 
And we were seeing warning signs of, of profit margins coming under pressure, particularly for small businesses. And you know the stat, uh, I don't have it at my fingertips, but, but more than half of America works for a small company. 59%, yep. Yeah, I was going to say 60, so it's pretty close. Uh, we'll round up and we'll say 60% of, of, of the United States works for an employer with less than 1,000 employees. And when you look at these companies, they had had flat profits for the better part of five, if not six or seven years at this point, going back to kind of 2013-ish. And what was happening? Well, they were facing higher wage costs over the last couple of years. We'd had uh, increase in the minimum wage and we had a real surge in particularly kind of low and mid-tier wages coming out, not so much coming out of the last recession, but in the middle part of this recovery and into the last couple of years. So these businesses were, were in, I don't want to say in trouble, but they were under pressure well ahead of coronavirus. When we look at what their response has been to coronavirus, small and mid-sized companies have been shedding jobs. I, I think I don't have any data to back it up, but my, my sort of underlying assumption is almost faster than large companies. Uh, we came across a, a paper by a couple of academics from Harvard and University of Chicago. They were looking at small businesses specifically. They had reduced headcounts by about 40%. And this was both across companies that were closed and open. When they just looked at the companies, the small businesses that were open, they'd reduced jobs somewhere between 15 and 20% of their headcount. So, you know, even businesses that were operating that were, you know, less impacted by coronavirus, I don't want to say they were using coronavirus as an excuse, but they were taking steps to, you know, shed labor costs, which were weighing on them and had been preventing profitability for some time. Why is this important? You know, small business, most jobs are created by small businesses. Most Americans are work employed by a small business. If small businesses are under continued pressure, if they don't get the help from the government, they, the government certainly set up the, the PPP program. They had to re-up the funding for it, but there's been less stimulus for small businesses. If there's less of a recovery in small business employment, that's going to mean more people out of work. It's going to mean a slower economic recovery. And just to put some numbers to your comments, Josh, if you look at the ADP report for April, small businesses shed 17.8% of the wages, while their bigger brethren shed only 13.6%. And if you look uh, over to companies that have less than 50 employees, they cut 18.5% of their jobs. So again, it does appear that the, the small business owners that have been facing this margin pressure are the ones who are first and, and, and most aggressively cutting their labor because of those headwinds that you just talked about with profit margins. And the other thing I'll mention about this maybe being a U-shaped or a swoosh or a backwards J type of recovery is that obviously there's going to be shifts in behavior until a vaccine or proven treatment emerge for the virus, especially with the 55 and older community or a segment here in the U.S., that uh, cohort represents 40% of domestic spending here. And uh, with U.S. economy representing 70% of domestic spending, that's a huge chunk of spending that may not come back online again until you see some sort of uh, vaccine or proven treatment emerge here. You're seeing this clearly in China, even though China's manufacturing sector has come on very aggressively. Consumers are staying away from large crowds. They're hesitant to engage in face-to-face -face transactions. And uh, if you think about the U.S. economy, that means a lot of pressure on areas like restaurants, bars, travel, anything that requires mass gatherings, again, until we can get some positive data on vaccines. So I, I'm with you, Josh. I do think that this is going to be a slower recovery than what's currently anticipated by consensus. Now, I know that we are coming up on uh, 30 minutes here, so I, I just want to be mindful of everybody's time. So I'm going to do a quick lightning round with me and you. I know you're just hearing about this now, but hopefully you'll find it's fun. 
So what are the other key issues in the markets, i.e. the wall of worry? Name a wall of worry or a key issue in the markets. What's your quick kind of one to two sentence take on it? I'll agree or disagree with you. And then we'll move on to another potential wall of worry item. So uh, I'll kick it over to you first, Josh. What's your, your first wall of worry issue? I think the prospect for additional stimulus, much of the stimulus both by both the Federal Reserve and coming out of D.C. has been focused on bridging the gap, getting us sort of just across a shutdown, but not so much focused on the economy as it starts to recover. The House Democrats passed a bill over the last couple of days. The Senate does not seem to have the appetite. The White House does not seem to have the appetite for as large a stimulus plan right now. So how that plays out, I think, is going to be one of the key issues over the next couple of months. What's, uh, what's your first lightning round item? Oh, no, I, well, I would agree with that. I think if they don't get a stimulus package from Congress that's uh, $1.5 trillion or above, I think the markets will uh, do what the markets did back in 2008 when the initial package wasn't passed. They'll throw a tantrum and ultimately force policymakers to come back to the table for a larger package. My issue that I'm watching is trade wars. Obviously, this is going to dominate the headlines between now and the elections. But I think how, without the exception of maybe some tougher rules on technology exports and a range of like more symbolic steps, I don't think that this is going to be a full-scale trade war. I don't think there's going to be a lot of tariffs for two very important reasons. First, the U.S. has a continued reliance on this Chinese supply chain because of COVID-19, i.e. we need medical supplies, medical equipment, maybe a vaccine in the long term. And secondly, I don't think the administration wants to upset the economy even further right now going into elections because of that close connection between a president's re-election bid and the health of the economy in the year of that election. Do you agree or disagree with that, Josh? I agree with you there. Uh, my, my next lightning one would be, do we have a vaccine? And you know, almost equally importantly, does the virus mutate? You know, so is that vaccine effective? We've all done our part or done what we can to try to flatten the curve. We've seen some countries, not, not in the U.S., but we've seen some countries, particularly in Asia, start to see signs of a, a potential second wave. And that will be one of the key things the market focuses on, or what are the prospects of a second wave? Will there need to be more shutdowns? Hopefully not another national or, or something close to a national shutdown, maybe something more localized, you know, sort of quickly contained. But how does that continue to play out? I think will be another one of the most important things in the market and, and potential speed bumps along the way. In regards to the second wave, 10 states right now are opening up when you're seeing an increased number of cases. You're seeing really good data out of Georgia and South Carolina, for example, but also Texas, you're seeing those cases rise. So I think because of the regionalized approach that we did here in the U.S., I think that makes it a possibility of a second wave much higher than what you've seen over in other countries. And maybe the last one I'll throw out to you, Josh, or I can obviously tackle it, is the wall of worry that's not being talked about, but will likely be talked about, which is the election in 2020. Do you have any perspective you want to share there? Because I, 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 can, I can certainly add some comments. I'll let you go first, then I'll throw my last key issue out after that. How about that? Yeah, there is rising probabilities that you're going to see a Democratic sweep in November. That obviously could hurt the markets in a couple of different ways. Um, first off, you could see higher taxes. Now, Biden has campaigned on increasing the corporate tax rate back up to 28%. He's also proposed higher taxes on high income earners, capital income. Both of those would probably be a market negative if it was to come to fruition. Also, I think there's going to be more regulation that's going to hurt financials. That's definitely going to hurt energy. It could hurt big tech, which again, are very large constituents of the market. And then lastly, which it doesn't get a lot of talk, but I think could certainly be ratcheted up is making buybacks illegal. Uh, prior to 1982, 
buybacks was a, considered a form of share manipulation. And given the fact that you know the Fed is bailing out quote unquote over levered companies that binged on debt to do share buybacks, I could see a situation where buybacks are you know maybe deemed illegal again. And uh, if that is the case, that means that you're taking the biggest buyer out of equity markets, which has been one of the driving forces for the bull market over the last eleven years. But last wall of worry thought from you, Josh. I think, you know, and it's also an opportunity is, uh, you know, what are the lasting changes in behavior that come from this? You mentioned a couple seconds ago that, you know, 40% of consumption in the U.S. comes from the 55 and over part of the population. You know, what, what I mean, and these are unanswerables, but what, what are the things that will happen and will continue to change over the next couple of years as we move, hopefully move past coronavirus being the, the dominant driver of the markets? And, you know, when you look at September 11th, took I think to about 2004, 2005 for air traffic to return to its sort of 2000, you know, pre pre September 11th levels. It was about a four or five year, year period of time where, where the airline industry had to really reinvent itself and change pretty dramatically. You know, we don't know what's going to happen over the next four or five years, but I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities. There's going to be, you know, winners and losers coming from this. Some things that were probably already, you know, happening are just getting accelerated. There's going to be other things that that we're not even aware of, but I think we want to be really focused on what those lasting changes in, in both individual and corporate behavior are. You know, do corporations, as you were just talking about, buy back less shares and start running, you know, more defensive balance sheets, keeping more cash on hand? Do consumers do the same thing? You know, do we all keep more money in a checkings account or savings account for a rainy day? So that's one of the other things I think that market's really struggling with and trying to figure out as we go forward. And I think that really plays into the hands of active managers, right? There's going to be a huge separation between the winners and losers. There's going to be big dispersion. You're seeing, you know, dispersion that we haven't seen in quite a long time in financial markets. And that presents a a really good stock picking opportunity for active managers that are familiar with obviously the business models, but also the financial health of the individual companies and what the long-term growth prospects for them are. So in conclusion, you know, obviously we've uh, had about three years worth of market action over the past two and a half months. I sincerely hope for my long-term health that the volatility does subside here for the foreseeable future. But obviously, as the economy opens, there's uh, certainly a couple of road bumps that we could hit along the way. But we'll be monitoring the recovery dashboard for signs of that durable market and economic bottom. Josh, I want to thank you so much for for joining me here on the, the virtual podcast booth. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining this version of ClearBridge's podcast. We hope you'll continue to join us throughout 2020. And we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Thanks for joining. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of May 18th, 2020, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.